Colorado fails to pass an assaultman's ban, plus former NRA board member Frank Tate on his efforts to reform the organization. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter today if you want to get the latest in guns in American news, if you want to keep up with what's going on. Uh, you can also, of course, buy a membership to support our reporting, because that is how we make a living here at The Reload. That is how we are able to do what we do. And so... The members make it possible. If you want to help make it possible, you should become a member. This week, we are discussing the NRA annual meeting, which I got back from uh, just a few days ago. And uh, there's, I think, a significant amount to talk about. So uh, to that end, we have Frank Tate, who is a now former NRA board member on the show to talk about his time at the organization and uh, and his thoughts on the annual meeting this year. So welcome to the show, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Steve, thanks for having me. And by the way, I am a member. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wonderful. I'm an annual member. <laughs> well, I guess this uh, I guess this doubles as a member segment, a very, very long member segment too, <laughs> as well. Um, but so you, I won't, I promise not to go any easier on you just because you're a member. <laughs> but, um, but Yes. Yeah, so tell people a little bit more about yourself. Uh, you know, what, what do you do for uh, outside of your NRA activism and, and what made you decide to get involved and run for the board? Um, I'm a 40 year education technology person. Uh, I retired from that in 2019. <clears throat> so I was actually out at the Indianapolis uh, meeting in 2019. Um, I am an NRA instructor. I'm a training counselor, chief brain safety officer. I've been doing that since uh, 2006. So, uh, you know, competitor, IDPA, USBSA, three gun, trap, you know, uh, loved it. Uh, and as a training counselor, I love creating new instructors. So that's that, that's my passion in firearms. Um, what got me started with the, the reform movement in the NRA is Adam Kraut. Um, Adam was the manager of a gun store where I'd made many purchases. Adam actually built my first AR pistol for me. Um, and so at the 2019 annual meeting, uh, was chatting with Adam before the members meeting and he had prepared the resolution calling for, um, the, uh, uh, vote of no confidence in, uh, the executive vice president finance audit and executive committees for all the malfeasance that had been coming out in the press. And he asked me if I'd be willing to put my name on it. And I said, yes. So I was the one who stood up and made that resolution in 2019. <clears throat> um, was infuriated by the um, the parliamentary uh, uh, maneuvering to try and keep that from being dealt with. Uh, and then when Adam decided that uh, uh, his work as a lawyer protecting our rights was more important than serving on the NRA board, I decided to pick up his mantle and carry that forward and ran for the board uh, in for 2020, 2021, 2022, um, and uh, uh, kept uh, kept trying to keep focus on issues. Uh, one of the things that I, the reason that I'm going after it as a board level is I have been a board member of various organizations for over 25 years. So I have been an operator uh, serving as senior management on public companies 
of, uh, you know, from you know, 500 to 700 million dollars of revenue. Uh, so I understand what it takes to run a big business. And I have been a board member on nonprofit uh, organizations. Uh, and I understand nonprofits and how they work. And most of my career has been serving the education and government industries where the accounting, I understand the accounting rules for nonprofits because they're very similar to government, uh, uh, government accounting. Mm. Okay. And so, uh, you're obviously a, a, a dissident board member. You got on, it, it took a little bit of effort there, <laughs> but you did eventually make it onto the board. You've served uh, a shortened term because, uh, you made it on after, uh, another board member passed away because you would, you were sort of the runner up, I guess, in, in last year's election. And, and that's, that is how you yeah. got onto the board. Right? Yeah, I was, I ran, I ran in five elections, uh, three for, to get on the bat, three to be uh, elected as a director and twice for the 76th director. Um, and, uh, my record is a stellar offer. Um, I was over five. Uh, and then it's only when uh, Dave Butts passed away that I was the only mm. remaining candidate on the ballot who had not been elected. And per the bylaws, that immediately elevated me to the board. So that's how I got on. Not, right. not, not the way I would have wanted it, but I got on. Certainly. Certainly. And uh, and your term just ended at, at this year's annual meeting, right? Yeah, I was on for about six months. Okay. And uh, it's, going back to that resolution real quick from 2019, if I'm remembering correctly, and please... Please do correct me if I get this wrong. That uh, ended up being referred to the board for further action, right? It wasn't outright defeated. To the bylaws and resolutions committee. Right. And so they were supposed to determine. So basically the board was going to determine whether or not the board should resign. You know, these large number of members of the board should resign. Is yeah, that the, bylaw, yeah, the bylaws and resolution committee, you know, circular file. They never dealt. I, I don't have the minutes from that meeting when it was result, was. Actually, I do have the minutes for that. I should go back and look. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I know that no further action was ever taken on it. Right. But it's this uh, by parliamentary maneuvering. Yeah. Um, instead of voting up or down in that 2019 meeting, they had a third option where you could vote to yeah. refer this motion to the board. But essentially, that meant that the board would decide whether or not the board was corrupt and should resign. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, yes, I remember finding that very um, symbolic in, in a way. Yeah. But uh, Infur Infuriating is another word to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, uh, you know, we just got done with the annual meeting here in, once again, in Indianapolis, uh, which, you know, of course, invites a lot of comparisons, I think. Um, this year was, it's interesting because this year was significantly uh, better attended than last year. Uh, and I think that is uh, obviously a positive sign for the NRA as an organization that you, I think it was 66,000 in 2022. And this year it was somewhere around 77,000 was the attendance that they gave. Uh, and you could tell the difference in in the building, it certainly felt like there were far more people in the exhibit hall, at the leadership forum, at the members meeting. Uh, it was it was definitely more of a resurgence for the NRA in terms of at least the annual meeting. And um, so 
you know, that, 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 uh, is that your feeling of the, the event as well? Yeah. I thought last year's uh, members meeting was maybe 500 people. Um, mm -hmm. and it was, um, uh, I'll call it low energy. Um, this year, um, I think was similar energy, but maybe more like 700 people. Um, um, you know, there, there were still some members trying to, uh, push resolutions similar to in 2019. And, um, I think their, uh, their parliamentary, uh, knife is very, very sharp in terms of how they, they cut them off, uh, uh, also, they they did allow they did have the up and down votes on the resolutions this mm -hmm. year, and they were yes. soundly defeated. Um, and I think that's uh, is disappointing because I think a number of uh, I'll call them the dissident group has um, uh, given up and gone to support other organizations. They uh, they they don't turn up anymore. Mm. Yes, I would say that. Uh maybe a third of the people present at the members meeting voted to, there were two resolutions, yeah. one effectively calling on president Charles Cotton to resign. And the other one calling on Wayne yeah. uh, to resign. And, and both of those were defeated. And I think about a third of the audience yeah. voted in favor of them, um, which actually, to be honest, uh, was more than I was expecting after the way that the members meeting began, which was with uh, a standing ovation for Wayne uh, LaPierre. So, um, you know, it was, it was interesting to see that standing ovation and then also to see people still basically saying he should resign. Uh, and you did still see a very similar breakdown in to the 2019 meeting in the sense that uh, most people who spoke for the resolution were regular NRA members and most people who spoke against it were NRA board members. Um, a lot of the same people actually that had spoken in 2019. So, uh, you know, that's an interesting dichotomy. I was certainly the board is, has this entire time been very supportive of Wayne LaPierre and his leadership. Uh, and those who aren't or, or weren't are all completely gone now, yeah. uh, you know, including yourself, right? The Phil journey is also off the board now. Uh, wasn't renominated because, in part, because the board controls who gets renominated, right? Uh, yeah. To a large extent, yeah, and, and then Grand Hill as well. Yeah, and you also saw over the last four years any essentially any of the board members who who spoke out publicly uh, criticizing Wayne's use of uh, private jets or luxury vacations and so forth. Um, were effectively removed from their committee assignments first and then not renominated and off the board. Uh, I just so, one, one minor adjustment to that spoke out privately or publicly. So even if they tried to keep mm -hmm. it just inside the board, that uh, any any perspective of disloyalty, you became what Marion Hammer called the enemy within and needed, needed to be removed. So I think, uh, is it Jay Prince, who's a, NRA board member, yeah. uh, he said a number of colorful things as he does basically yeah. every year uh, uh, during the members meeting whenever these topics come up. But I think he was a prince or it might have been Tom King who uh, accused uh, the person who sponsored the resolution this year of, of you know, basically being the same as Michael Bloomberg, uh, which is a common refrain that you hear. Uh, and presumably that applies to you as well. What do you how do you feel? Uh, you know, about that criticism that essentially the, the main critique that you'll hear from 
board members who support Wayne is that those like you who are critical of him or want to remove him are hurting the NRA, that you're doing the work of Michael Bloomberg or gun control advocates, uh, that, that you're, uh, you know, weakening the organization by doing this. So how do you feel, um, how do you respond to those sorts of accusations? Iron sharpens iron. So the only way a board um, uh, is able to strengthen an organization is to have rigorous debate uh, and to um, hash through issues and deal with them forthrightly. Um, uh, suppression of comments, suppression of dissent, to me, is a sign of weakness. Um, because if you can't uh, if you can't defend the position, you have to ostracize and eliminate those that. Um, have contrary views it, to me it's it's a sign of weakness so um uh you know I, i'm my, most of my career is mergers and acquisitions it's evaluating companies evaluating leadership teams and looking for strength uh and uh you know when i'm evaluating a company if the you know the leadership team defers all the decisions to one person we don't buy that company because that's not a leadership team that can scale. That's just a leader uh, uh, who is doing things the leader wants once done. Uh, that's not a scalable, growing organization. And I think the track record of the NRA for the past four years mirrors that because you have suppressed dissent. You have um, uh, basically, um, uh, what's the right, uh, right word for it? Um, institutionalized weakness in terms of um, uh, a smaller and smaller group of people are supporting uh, positions and only people that support those positions are brought onto the board uh, in terms of the nominating process and those that try to come on as a, I, I, didn't, I don't refer to myself as a dissident, I refer to myself as an independent director. I bring an independent perspective uh, I'm, you know, I've been a life member since 91. I've been a member since 79. You know, I am support, I support the mission of the, of the NRA and the association, but that just because I support the mission mission doesn't mean I need to support management. Uh, and I think that's where, that's what a true independent director does on a board is that do we have the right leaders in place? Do we have the right succession plan in place? Is our budget achievable? Do we have the right plans and programs in place? Uh, and if you don't say yes, then you are uh, you're the enemy within. Hmm. Uh, well, let's go through a couple more of these these critiques while while we're on this topic or these responses, because um, you know a number of them came up again at the members' meeting, right? The, these common defenses that you'll hear of, of Wayne and, and members of leadership. Um, one being essentially that Wayne LaPierre has done a lot for the NRA and to protect the Second Amendment and, you know, his uh, name being on the fundraising letters brings in so much money for the NRA that, you know, he effectively, um, you know, deserves the salary that he gets paid in in terms of because um, he makes more than two million dollars a year. Right. And uh, that's been a point of criticism before. But, you know, I think there was one board member said that as a percentage of the group's revenue, he's making less than uh, other gun rights groups, leaders, uh, 
I guess because the NRA's revenue is so large, obviously compared to other groups. Um, and, and additionally, you know, some of these things that he does like using private jets commonly, um, or any, any a number of other expenses that get run through the NRA, um, mosquito treatments for his house, uh, d- different, uh, car rentals, that, that sort of thing, um, are necessary because of the unique safety concerns that he has because he's been swatted a number of times. He's been, you know, there's obviously he gets death threats constantly. Um, you know, these are often the justifications that you will hear for some of the spending that has gone on in regards to Wayne LaPierre um, and, and in regards to how much he makes from the organization what is your response to that? Like, do you, do you think those are legitimate or what, uh, why aren't, why wouldn't those be legitimate so, uh, defenses uh, of what he's done? A couple of thoughts here. One is, you know, um, agree. Wayne has done great things for the organization in the past. The job of the board is not the honor of the past. The job of the board is the guidance for the future. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges with the board. They are looking in the rear view, uh, they're looking in the rear view mirror, not in the windshield. Um, and that when you, uh, I, my term on the board did not, I did not get into any of the compensation points. Uh, and, uh, you know, to me, the, the record in the New York AG case and the bankruptcy lays out pretty well, uh, what the expenditures are. Um, and the New York AG has taken exception to them and, um, uh, I'm not a judge, but, uh, you know, when you look at them, you know, uh, I, I think many of many of those expenditures were inappropriate. Uh, I'll, I'll just stop at that. Uh, that's for the, the jury. That's for the jury to decide. Um, but when you when you look at what the, um, you, know, you know, death threats and other pieces and security, you know, their expenses. But when I look at the budget of the NRA, I look at two, you know, uh, there's a concept in management, you know, boulders, rocks, and pebbles. And the expenditures are pebbles in terms of overall uh, expenditures in the business. Um, the boulders that need to be dealt with are the declining membership and the excessive, and I will use the word excessive legal fees. So when you look at those two things, everything else is, you know, um, uh, when you're in a $200 million budget, you know, what are the big numbers? You know, you've got membership, which is more than half of that, which is, you know, it's $100 million plus of membership, you know, from the 990 reports. Uh, and then you have legal fees that are over $50 million. Well, that's, you know, they're, they're the two big boulders. And so what are you doing to, to manage the boulders? The little stuff works itself out. And I think that's been one of the challenges with the reform movement is being overly focused on on little things that, um, you know, as a board member, we talk about, well, what's material? And the other way of looking at things is what's a rounding error? So if it's a rounding error, is it really relevant to spend board time on? Um, and I will say I've seen board members spending time in meetings on rounding error items because they weren't dealing with the boulders. And the boulders are the, the membership revenue, the declining membership revenue, and the increasing legal fees. Right. But I, a lot of reform minded uh, people, a lot of people who want to get rid of Wayne Lop here, see those things as connected, right? Uh, is Do you view them that way? Like, I, you know, the legal fees are what they are yeah. because of this New York yeah. lawsuit. 
um, over the allegations of corruption and yeah. misappropriation of funds, right? And the the declining membership, you know, yeah. at least from a, a dissident point of view or a reformer point of view, uh, is connected to those things as well, right? Is that do you hold that view or do you do you they, see it differently? They are connected, but again, I'll, that's when I come back to what's in the rearview mirror versus what's in the windshield. So the mm -hmm. rearview mirror, all those things happen. Should those expenditures have happened? No. Should there be restitution for that? Well, that's a matter for the court. Um, you know, personally, I think there should be restitution for those inappropriate uh, expenditures. Do you um, think that things have been uh, fixed on that front? Do you think the inappropriate expenditures have actually stopped? You know, last year the NRA spent one point two million dollars on private flights again. Um, is do you have, during your time on the board, did you get the sense that things have been reformed? Because this is uh, obviously one of the key points of contention in that New York case. The NRA's basic defense is that, yes, there were issues previously. Um, this is something that they went on at length in the, the failed bankruptcy filing. Um, but that they instituted a number of reforms and that they fired some people like Josh Powell and Woody, uh, the, the former um, treasurer, uh, Woody Phillips and and Chris Cox. And, they, you know, they've they've and the, you know, so they try to point to this as points of reform and they they claim that the problems have been solved. Do you feel that's the case or uh do you think there are ongoing issues on that front? I, I will give the NRA credit. They have made, uh, uh, they have reformed some areas, um, not all. Um, so um, they, uh, I sat through two audit committee meetings. I'm trying to think of how I can phrase this uh, and maintain. Um, uh, I read the audit engagement letter. I read the auditor's management letter. I read the auditor's reports. Um, the auditors are doing a thorough job uh, as as they should. Um, uh, I spent time, you know, I I, um, I serve on boards, and one of my fellow board members is a retired, a recently retired Big Four partner in auditing firms, and so he schooled me in terms of how to approach the audit committee meetings, um, and and I will say that the auditors are doing what they need to be doing. So I, I feel that that part is correct. Um, they, uh, but uh, but I guess the bottom line is uh, that that is good to hear. I, I imagine that will be reassuring to to some NRA members who are still with the group, yeah. um, which does still have you know four point yeah. two million or so members. Uh, but I guess the bottom line is like it, in your view, it does sound like perhaps you think. The organization could go on if it made some well, reforms say, to how it operates under the same leadership, and, and it, things will be no, will be able to be corrected. It, Is that it's, true? It's better. It's not right yet. Um, okay. So uh, one of the things that I, uh, all the other boards that I'm on, have a clear, consistent, either what you call it a delegation of authority or a grant of authority document that spells out who can make what decisions when. Uh, like, you know, what does the board have to approve by bylaws? What does, what can the board approve by dollar amounts? Um, you know, things like contract approval, signatures, where does the board need to be informed of things, you know, down to individual manager levels for expenditures. Um, the, the, the documentation for that is scattered through multiple documents and it's incomplete to me. It is incomplete. 
And so the auditors can only audit to what documentation they have. Uh, so I had, I had recommended uh, multiple times that the NRA needed to adopt a structure like that, where it was clear that employees knew what the rules were, management knows what the rules are, board members know what the rules are. And I think that's one of the gaps is that because these documents are, because these rules are scattered through all these documents, that board members don't know what's appropriate. They're only, they only know what they're told. Um, and I think that's one of the, that, that's a major issue that needs to be cleaned up. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's going to be a chief compliance officer brought to the members for approval in the 2024 election, um, where the, uh, the NRA needs a new uh, a new uh, officer who is the chief compliance officer who is responsible to make sure everything is being done correctly. Because um, uh, it's interesting, you know, one thing that I think is a big question is whether or not the NRA can uh, be reformed under current leadership. Or, you know, obviously that their argument in court is that yeah. it has been reformed and is operating better and yeah. it doesn't have the same issues. But... Wayne LaPierre is at the center of most of these allegations of, of misuse of funds, and he's only gotten more powerful inside yes. of the NRA since then, as far as I could tell. He took the agency into back the, the entire group yeah. into bankruptcy effectively on his own. He had to go to the board after the fact to get emergency approval. Uh, board members didn't find out until it broke in the news yeah. that that happened. And then even just recently, they gave... Um, Wayne LaPierre, the power to sell off the gun collection that yeah. they have at, at will without board approval. So, so that's so that's one where um, I, I I dug deep into that one. Uh, so just to be clear, the NRA by law has to honor any donor restrictions. So okay. items that were donated as you can't sell it, it has to be in the museum. That has to be honored. Um, items that were donated without restriction, the NRA has the ability to sell. And that sure. items that were donated prior to 2001 were, are considered unrestricted. The bylaw change that was done streamlined the process because it used to be that the collection committee had to approve a sale. Then it had to go to the finance committee to approve a sale to then be able to be executed by uh, management. And so the bylaw change streamlined that process. But the only firearms that are able to be sold are those that were donated with a open, you can sell it. If you display it, sell it, do whatever you want with it. It's now an asset for the NRA to benefit the NRA. Uh, sure. What, what I've seen most people do is actually donate it to the foundation. And the NRA cannot sell foundation assets for the benefit of the NRA. The assets to the foundation. Well, isn't there a lawsuit over that uh, as well? There, there is. A, that's the D.C. lawsuit, which is yes. the... Uh, um, the, uh, the attorney general in D.C. is uh, claiming that the NRA was, um, I'll, I'll just use, these are my words, may not be legally accurate, misappropriating funds from the foundation for the benefit of core NRA. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so that's another active yeah. lawsuit against them. Yes. But, mm -hmm. but right. Um, uh, that That is interesting information. So, uh, just to, so everyone's clear, because this, this was uh, something that people talked a lot yeah. about it when it first came out. Um, uh who has the power to uh, obviously look it's a private collection yeah. so they the nra could always sell off and has always sold off some guns that are donated yeah. to it you know if they're not particularly mm -hmm. uh you know worthy of being in the museum yeah. or something like that they they have the ability to sell them off and raise funds mm -hmm. to complete their mission i don't think that's particularly controversial 
Uh, but the the thing that was controversial is that it went from being something that had to be board approved to something that yeah. Wayne could do, or you know, not maybe not him yeah. personally, but his office, the executive vice president, could do without getting approval from the yeah. board. Is and, that and is that, that is, what happened? Yeah, is, that is, is only is that for those assets that do not have donor restrictions. Okay, so, so he can't sell ones that someone says correct. All right, I'm giving this to you with the stipulation that you have to display it in the yeah, in the so, museum. So some of the more famous guns so, so that the NRA has I'll, I'll give you an example. can't be sold. Um, I looked at the I looked specifically at the at the bequest of the Peterson collection, which is one of the right. much more famous collections. And that bequest is very, very clear that those firearms are to be displayed as part of the museum and may never be sold or transferred. And and so that was part of the uh, now I think I'm okay here. Uh, that was actually part of the audit to validate that the NRA was in compliance with the, the restrictions on, with the uh, being they are in compliance with the restrictions on donated firearms. That was a okay. specific item addressed in the audit. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, that's good to have the full details yeah. on that. I mean, this is kind of an aside. Uh, I still think it shows the basic point that Wayne is still gotten yes. more power, not less power as time has gone along Yes, uh, since 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, now you, um, but your, your main point here is that you're less concerned about, um, you know, a yacht trip that Wayne took in 2016 or something. And then you are about the loss of a million yeah. members of the last four years or uh, the, the ballooning legal costs to the point where it's now, the top line item, uh, top single line item in the NRA's budget is is uh, yeah. legal fees for uh, other the than, administration. Yeah, administration. other than fundraising costs, yes. Right. Yeah. So and that, at least according to their own, you know, the the yeah. um, the annual meeting, the annual reports that they put yeah. out. And, and so I'll say part of it is because of the lawsuits, the courts are going to deal with the past expenditures, um, and as a uh, you know, the, the board is unwilling to make any changes in leadership uh, and that the only way that you can make a change in leadership, it, it takes a, if I remember correctly, it's a three quarters vote of the board. Um, right. And so when the board nominating process for 20 years has been to bring people on board who are supportive of the current management team um, uh, to get three quarters of that board to make a uh, a change in leadership, you know, when all the things came out in 2019, it's pretty clear that they are unwilling or unable to make a change in leadership. And so they're, they're just going to stay the course um, and that anybody who does not uh, uh, enthusiastically stay the course gets removed. So right. uh, uh, that's not going to get fixed uh, through the current election process or the board process. Uh, to me, the only thing that's going to fix that is the court. Hmm. So you've kind of, I mean, it sounds like you've kind of given up hope on making internal changes, and now you're relying on, uh, I guess, the judge in the New York case, because obviously the attorney general, you know, certainly the NRA would uh, would say, and I think a lot of gun rights advocates would agree, that she is not in it to to uh, save the NRA by any means, right? Um, yeah. She she would just as soon see it dissolved and send its money to other groups than uh, have it reformed, but... Yeah. But perhaps what the so I guess the reliance here is on the judge making a good uh, decision. Is that well, well, where I, you're laying your hope now? I, I think there's two thoughts here. One is 
um, uh, when you're in a battle and your enemy is defeating themselves, stay out of their way. And I think that's part of what the uh, attorney general in New York is doing is just giving the NRA time because uh, as time goes, uh, time continues to pass, the NRA is not getting stronger. Um, uh, and then the, the second part is that the attorney general's, um, her charge the, the, in terms of the uh, removing the, you know, removing LaPierre, removing Frazier, um, you know, and then restitution from uh, the four, you know, Powell, Phil, Phillips, uh, uh, LaPierre and uh, uh, and Frazier. Uh, then it's a question of, you know, what, if any, structural changes would the judge do? Um, you know, um, you know, Rocky Marshall has put out several uh, posts, you know, forecasting another a, former, uh, another former, another board f- member. former board member, you know, looking at revenues and forecasting that the association is on trend for bankruptcy. Uh, and that, um, you know, the bankruptcy judge would be the best answer. Uh, the question is, will the NRA, uh, either do, just as in the course of operations in terms of their declining revenue and increasing legal costs, Cross that um, uh, bankruptcy threshold, or will um, the uh, costs that would be incurred by the association post legal post uh, post resolution of the New York case or the uh, DC case um, drive the NRA into bankruptcy? Mm. Because it, yeah. you, know, you'd, you know, you the only way to to me to reform the board uh, is the number one you have to abolish the executive council. Uh, because the executive council is that group of predominantly former presidents um, who, you know, to me, that is the real board of the NRA. They're the ones who make the decisions. And how many people are on that um, right now? Uh, seven or eight. Because one of the key complaints about the NRA's management is that the board is too big, right? There's 76 board members. Um, uh, well, it, a lot it, of them aren't. In a... In a a nonprofit in a nonprofit, you have what is uh, uh, typically called the fundraising board, and that is what the seventy-six directors are. Their job is to do what they're told and raise money. Uh, and then you have the, um, uh, but they are all fiduciaries under New York law, uh, right. so they they're all um, um, liable for the uh, the actions of the association. And then you'll have a smaller group that tends to be the decision-making board, and that's the uh, uh, the executive um, uh, executive committee, of which there are twenty members. Uh, but the executive committee only meets in between regular board meetings where there's a decision that has to be made on a timely basis. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a uh, uh, to me that's uh, you know they don't meet very frequently at all. Uh, but the executive council um, takes no minutes. You know, they're they're like the uh, special litigation committee. There are no minutes, so there is no transparency to the board for what deliberations go on. Um, so, uh, the an example would be the, you know, first vice president of the NRA, Willis Lee, was removed. Uh, he was not put back in place at the board meeting on Monday. Uh, Bob Barr was elected first vice president, and mm-hmm. they, uh, part of that came from the the resolution to extend Charles Cotton another year came from the special litigation committee. Um, and then that was then endorsed by the executive council in its communication to the board. Um, and so that was the, okay, we're doing this. And then, um, uh, you know, throughout the board meeting uh, and the, the committee meetings last week, 
um, you know, uh, Willis Lee went from being first vice president to not being an officer. <laughs> right. And, and the, yeah, which is very unusual too. It's very um, unusual. And again, that's the, the, I'll say a lack of transparency. I think, uh, um, it was it Willis posted on Facebook that, uh, the nominating committee report was slipped under his door. And so he found out he was out as first vice president by a note that we shared with all board members being slipped under his door. But that's a common thing too. The whole slipping under the door, yeah. the ballot stuff like that's a, that's another thing that's yeah. happens commonly at these meetings, yeah. right? Well, that's that's, that's they... where there's a small group of people that make a decision and then they communicate the decision to the board and the board is expected to approve it. Yeah, it's sort of something out of a movie, but that's yeah. how it actually operates. Yeah, um, and, and that dissent is um, um, not uh, even debate is not you know it's it's rubber stamp, rubber stamp, rubber stamp. So to me, the board the board does not operate as a board in terms of governing the association. Um, the executive council really governs the association. The board is kept uh, busy. Uh, it's busy work that that benefits the members and benefits the association. But it, it uh, keeps them away from any of the um, the true governing of the association. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, you mentioned this fiduciary responsibility, and this is something that I always fascinates me about people who are joining the board now, because um, obviously there's been all these significant legal issues with the NRA, and it's become fairly clear that your average NRA board member on their own isn't going to have much impact on how decisions are made there. Um, certainly not if if you're against what the you know the rest of the board uh, wants to do. Um, but you're still going to be responsible for those decisions. At the, at the very least, if you do nothing to you know make your objections known, which uh, very few people. That's probably been maybe a dozen board members have publicly. Yeah done something to show dissent uh, through votes or trying to intervene in the bankruptcy or public comments or so forth. Um, and the rest of them, even if they don't necessarily agree, there's sort of, it does seem like a lot, there's a lot of specialization on the board where they're really just concerned about whatever committee they're, mm -hmm. they happen to be on. You get a lot of like sports shooters, professional shooters will join the NRA board mm -hmm. and, and they're really there just to talk, just to focus on whatever their sports shooting category is. And it's unclear to me if they understand the fiduciary responsibilities that they have, especially given that the NRA has in the past lost its uh, directors and officers insurance, which, you know, covers you in the situation where you might get sued over a decision that you were part of making. Um, and, and I'm interested in your personal calculation when you decided to take that position on the board, because other people have declined a crowd. Uh, yeah who you brought up earlier now works at the second amendment foundation. He declined when yeah. he, his, uh, opportunity came, um, you know, he had, and he had previously run for the board and, but he declined to get to go on the board when, uh, you know, people were forced off or resigned or what have you. And, um, so I'm interested in why you thought it was like what went into your personal calculus on joining this board where you're going to have fiduciary responsibility for decisions made and you don't agree with a lot of the decisions that they've been making. So um, a couple things. One is um, prophylactically, I secured individual liability insurance for what I what I may have been exposed for serving on a nonprofit board. So mm. I, you know, all, rule one is always don't become victim number two. 
uh, so uh, protect myself. Uh, when I consulted with count my counsel to uh, join the board, uh, his recommendation was don't. Uh, but you know, I ran for the board for three years. Uh, I felt I had an obligation to those who voted to uh, sign petitions to get me on the ballot and voted for me uh, uh, when I was on the ballot or even wrote me in when I was not, um, that I had an obligation to follow through on what I said I was running for. Um, so I did that. And uh, in consultation with my counsel, it was, okay, well, you know, look at what you can, but make sure you're protected. So I made visits to headquarters and I read documents. My uh, my first visit to headquarters, I read you know, a little over two and a half feet of paper um, uh, to, to go through and check things. So I, I read the director's and officer's policy. I mean, I had to go to headquarters. I could read it in paper. Um, I could have no electronic devices with me to do it. The only thing that I was allowed to have was my handy dandy little notebook here. Um, and I took notes on paper, but I'm a, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I was an accountant back in 74 when we were doing things on handwritten ledgers. So I'm okay writing stuff on handwritten ledgers. Um, but I looked at the DNO policy and uh, the DNO policy, I felt adequately protected me for my service on the board. Um, okay. Uh, the other thing is by. That has been something of a point of con uh, yeah. contention as well, ever since they lost the previous yeah. one, Lloyd's but, of London dropped it. But and that, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about exactly what uh, was put in place after that. But. I will say if I had been elected to the 76th director position last year, I would have had a different opinion. Um, uh, but because I was coming on while insurance was in full coverage, there was no change in policy that for the policy that I was covered under that uh, I felt that there was there was coverage for me, um, but backed up by what I had. Because when you look at the coverage and you divide it by 76 directors, um, there's not a whole lot of uh, coverage for an individual director. Um, and so um, uh I'll say I had almost as much personal uh, DNO coverage as the association has for all 76 directors. So mm. I wanted to protect myself. Um, right. And, you know, I, I remember a former board member who uh, resigned back in 2019 after the, uh, the, the big internal fight started. Uh, the way he put it to me or this was that um, it, it's like serving on a symbolic board. Yeah. In that you don't have any real power as one of 76, uh, but you carry all of the responsibility of serving on a real board. I it, guess it's is. exactly accurate. And as coming on as an interim, I did not have the benefit of going through board orientation that new board members get. Um, and, uh, and so this was one, again, reaching out to council. I said, OK, if I'm a new board member in New York Corporation, what should I do? And uh, they referred me to the... the uh, uh, New York State Attorney General Charities Bureau website, which has a really good guide for uh, uh, board members of not-for-profits in New York, and it outlines what your responsibilities are. Uh, and they're—I mean, I've been serving on boards since the, the, the late '90s, and so I, you know, I was always Pennsylvania companies and so or organizations. So I, you know, I looked at that, and so some of it was very, you know, the. Concepts are similar, language is a little different in terms of what your responsibilities are. Um, but uh, you know, I think that 
I, I don't know uh, if other directors were given that. Um, I have heard anecdotally um, that uh, prior um, uh, board orientation uh, was, uh, the, the quote was, they're not ready to have that yet. Uh, and I don't know if it was ever given to them. Uh, but to me, that you know, you you go on the board, you have to stand up and understand what your obligations are. Um, right, certainly. And um, so, you know, just to to sort of wrap things up here, what uh, what is it that you're hoping to see the NRA do? Like, what if 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 you could, you know, if you're speaking to your fellow board members and you're uh, telling them, you know, your top priorities for how to fix the organization. I believe you sent a letter to the other uh, members. There was some reporting on that from uh, with, uh, the NRA in Danger uh, had, had a copy of it or, um, you know, what, what can you lay out some of the top priorities you had in that letter or, or what your general thoughts to the people who still are on the board uh, would be? I mean, uh, you know, first was, you know, be aware of what your obligation, your legal obligations are under New York law. You know, make sure you know that. Um, second was about transparency and record access. Um, uh, typical boards provide their board members with the information that they need um, you know, through an electronic portal that, you know, watermarks things so you know who's seen what. Uh, but, uh, you know, to having to incur personal cost, I mean, it was nice for me. I live in Philly. It's a two hour drive. So two hour drive in an overnight hotel and I've got millions of points. So my hotels are free. Uh, so I could drive down and spend a day reading documents and drive home. So, it, you know, my cost out of pocket was under a hundred bucks. It was just gas and tolls. Um, but I had to do that four times in, in terms of getting the documents that I had asked for. Uh, you know, board members shouldn't have to do that. They should be able to look at things. Um, and then on the finance, on the financial side, uh, you know, trend analysis. You need to look at, you know, as a board, need to look at trends, see the see what's going on. And and to me, the the declining membership revenue is extremely troubling. Uh, and uh, and that's gone down. You know, obviously, we published a internal uh, budget report a little while back for last year yeah. that was really bad. And the numbers in the, yeah. you know, the annual report that they give yeah. out yeah. publicly at the meeting um, are, you know, back up that what was in yeah. the report that we published. Uh, although this, the one they give it out the meeting covers things up a little bit, or, you know, it's a different picture because it includes the foundation and, yeah. and some of the other nonprofits that the NRA. Well, and uh, and I think that's, with. that's one of the challenges is that those, but it's continuing to go down, right? Since the 2022, it's still, it's still declining. It is down month. It's down month, month over month. Uh, uh, it's lower. Um, Cause their and, budget and was calling for a big increase yeah, uh, uh, sort of, not even an why, but. not even an increase. It's less than um, they've gotten less than they had same time last year, and so that's that's one of the challenges when I talk about transparency. You have all these sub entities that are separate corporations, but the information presented to the board is presented consolidated, and right. the, the, there's the strength of the assets of the foundation and the other entities like the civil civil, uh, civil rights defense fund. That that when you roll it all up, it looks great, but when you pull it apart. You know, all the sub entities are nice and solid, but when you look at the core of the NRA, and that is what the board is, the board is the core NRA board. 
the membership uh, so, organization. So yeah. that, as an example, I was in the fine, at the foundation committee meeting uh, on, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. And since I am not on the board of the foundation, I had to leave when they went into executive session. So the foundation is its own board. Why is the board only looking at consolidated information with the, with the foundation stuff lumped in? It should be looking just at the NRA by itself. And to me, that's part of the um, uh, obfuscation. You know, you, you can say is, you know, they're, they're, they're playing hide the, uh, hide the meatball. You know, uh, hmm. you know, here there because you cover it up with all this other stuff, you can't see um, the true status of what the association is. And so I don't right. think the, the uh, that's that's what I tried to do with the letter to the board is, yo, I went and looked at this. You need to be aware of it. And, you know, my this was a letter to the board. I uh, um, I I am upset that it was leaked um, uh, because it was really meant to go just to the board. But so I guess in the end here, there hasn't been much, there haven't been many accomplishments from the sort of reformers, the dissenters on the board, including yourself. Uh, there hasn't been a big ups, you know, up, uprising of NRA members to try and uh, change the makeup of the board. You have, I mean, in fact, Voting in the board elections yeah. is at an all-time low, yeah. from what I understand, as far it's as percentages go. Three percent of the eligible voters voted. Yeah, something like seventy-five thousand votes that were actually counted this year, yeah. uh, compared to four point two million members, which four point two million members is down yeah. a million from yeah. its peaks. Um, you know, the revenues way down. Yeah. Uh, you know, what 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 do you see as the the future of the organization? I mean. Um, you know, why, why do you think people haven't bought into the idea of reforming the organ? Why, why haven't NRA members bought into the idea of, of trying to reform things? Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier, some of the, like, perhaps people have kind of given up on fixing it, or at least a sizable chunk of them. But, uh, you know, is, is that all it is, or do people just not believe you or what? No, I, I, I think the there truth. is, you know, when you look at uh, how the resolutions voted at the meeting, you know, there are um, a, a, a substantial number of members that support the association with its current leadership, um, because part of it is from a messaging standpoint, anything negative about the association or leadership is you're just reading Bloomberg. And so, you know, uh, you know, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. Um, and so I think that's part of where um, many of the members are. Uh, the members who are trying to reform it, uh, uh, you get ti- you get tired of beating your head against the brick wall uh, because it's it's not changing. Uh, the board is not taking up the responsibility to lead the organization or the association into the future. They're looking in the rearview mirror. Um, and so the the nominating committee, the elections process. Um, is not bringing anybody on the board who is interested in reforming. Uh, it, it, it's a uh, the board has antibodies against anybody who's trying to do anything different. It said, "Kill it, kill it, kill it," and uh, people get tired of being told they're uh, a, a a a Bloomberg tool. Um, you know, they're trying to do the right thing, and it's like, well, if you're not interested in in getting it, I will take my energy elsewhere. And that's why you see USCCA and Firearms Policy Coalition and Second Amendment Foundation and GOA, you know, their membership is growing 
Um, but the, they're still combined less than the NRA. Um, yeah, much less. Yes. Yeah, the, the, you know, uh, I, I would say we need a strong NRA that is that is leading the fight. Um, and uh, the, the challenge is as the resources, as the revenues have declined, the resources have been constrained and the NRA is capable of doing less and less because it has less people to do. And they're celebrating that, yes, we accomplished this less. We, we accomplished these things, but it's less than we used to. And um, and, and without a uh, clear perspective of, you know, your your tra- your trend and trajectory is down. Um, uh, at some point, it reaches uh, an unsustainable level. So, um, you know, when you're, um, I think I can phrase it this way. I'm, I'm trying very hard to make sure that I maintain my uh, confidentiality, even as a former board member. Uh, but when a uh, an organization uh, is cutting costs to keep its budget balanced, that means it's doing less. It, you know, when you're leaving positions vacant, you're doing less. And and uh, a long, an old boss of mine had a phenomenal line: "You cannot shrink yourself to prosperity." And the NRA as an association needs to grow itself into prosperity. And the growth needs to come from membership. That's why I talk about one of the boulders. Growing membership is what is the lifeblood of the association. And that's what, uh, that's what makes it a formidable, uh, uh, association protecting our rights. Um, but Uh, yeah, yeah, no, for certainly that is the strength of the NRA is the membership. Um, I think that's uh, something that is often overlooked in major media yeah. commentary about the NRA, but is undeniably true. And you can see the effects of losing membership yeah. on the group uh, right now. But last question here, because I've, you know, I've, I've kept you for longer than I than I said I would. Um, but the as we mentioned earlier, the, the vote count was very low and the basis there, there is one other way to get on the board as you as you yeah. have practiced yourself. Uh, it's difficult. It's mm-hmm. uh, the vast majority of board members are get on there by yeah. going through the, the nominating committee, which is controlled, of course, by the yeah. board. But you can get on by petition. And the threshold for getting on the ballot by petition is a percentage of the votes mm-hmm. cast. Right. Um, uh, and now that there are so few votes being cast, the threshold is is fairly low. It's a couple hundred signatures. Three hundred and seventy eight. So do you plan to run again? Uh, and if not, you know, do you see a move, you know, plans to try and reinvigorate this, this sort of refor- internal reform movement uh, through having a lot of people run under that, you know, this, this lower bar? Uh, personally, I am not going to run again. Um, mm-hmm. uh, part of it is I've, I've spent four years trying to do it and I look at where things are. And uh, do not believe that I could affect the change that needs to be affected uh, through the uh, uh, petition process. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the petition process would need to put at least 15 new board members beyond what the nominating committee does on the board for three consecutive years to have a, enough people to override the, um, I'll call it the established um, uh, uh, Leadership, yeah, the established leadership, um, and even if they yes. do, again, they're they're only at that outside fundraising board level. They don't get at that twenty-person uh, executive committee because there would be no until there's enough votes on the board to get 
people on the executive committee. Um, again, you need a majority of the board to do that. So uh, you're going to need um, uh, 36, well, no, 38 board members working for reform to, to start to even affect the executive committee. Yeah, I think that math adds up. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it does seem like a pretty bleak outlook for any internal yeah. reformers, anyone who wants to, um, yeah. you know, remove Wayne LaPierre, essentially. Yeah. Uh, well, there's so just not a lot of... The other one I'm going to be one, removing Wayne LaPierre is not going to change anything because it's a systemic issue. And it's the executive council that uh, really controls things. Wayne is executing what he does. So um, if, if Wayne is removed by the court and they, there's no other structural change made, nothing is going to change because the executive okay. council will put somebody in there who is um, going to execute what they want. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and point of view on uh, you know, your time at the NRA and the state of the organization. Uh, as always, you know, we, we are happy to have any other board member who has a different point of view on the show or Wayne or whoever else to represent the NRA and current leadership. Uh, be more than happy to make time for them as well. Uh, just let me know. But uh, until uh, next time, you know, maybe we'll have you on in the future as well. You can give us some more um, insight into the next. I'm sure there will be more NRA stories that come come down the line here in the short term, you know, the, the trial is set to start uh, this year uh, in New York. And as you said, Rocky Marshall has predicted the organization could go back into bankruptcy before then, even uh, potentially. Uh, we don't, I don't know beyond what's been publicly published uh, exactly how the finances are sitting right now, but, uh, but yeah, certainly we can, I'm sure we'll have more opportunity more reason to have you on in the future. So I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, if people want to follow you, I don't know if that's uh, something you're interested in having people do at this point, now that you're going back into private life, but uh, you know, where can they, where can they do that? I still have my Substack. It's um, uh, Tate, tatenra.substack.com. So that's out there. I, I have been silent since I joined the board because I wanted to you know, honor my fiduciary responsibilities, but uh um, I think with uh, the publication of this, I will start it back up again, uh, linking to the uh, uh, linking to this podcast. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to head on over to our news update. Okay, I'm back once again with our wonderful contributing writer, Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? I'm doing pretty good, Steve. How are you this week? I'm doing well. Uh, the Sixers just won their third game. They're on the way to a sweep of the Nets, which is nice. It's sad that Ben Simmons is not actually playing so that we can't, you know, dunk on him. Yeah. But it seems <laughs> that we are well on our way to making the finals and then losing. Uh, and then probably Embiid gets snubbed for MVP. That seems to be the trend this year in Philly sports. Um, that's what I expect to happen. Uh, nothing good can never come to us, but, uh, except for that one Super Bowl, we did, we did win the Super Bowl not that long ago. Still pretty happy about that. Sucks that we lost this Super Bowl, but anyway, happy that the Sixers won last night. It's a gut, gutsy win. We're, we're filming on Friday. So the, we're talking about the Thursday win here, but, um, 
Yeah. Uh, other than that, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually probably going to buy a new gun this weekend. Um, you know, I've been thinking about it for a long time. You run a business, you don't really want to, especially like a new startup business, you never really want to spend any money on anything, uh, to be honest with you. Um, uh, I'm just always worried about what comes next. I want to have money to in case I need it for the business. But uh, but I think it's time to upgrade my concealed carry. You know, as, uh, have you have you seen that Active Self Protection has a new app, by the way? Uh, I have not, but I've heard about this. I have not seen the app, but... Yeah, so they're, they they put out their own app that uh, has like premium content on it. Uh, this is not an ad, by the way, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I do their podcast, right? Uh, so people should check out the Active Self Protection podcast if you like the Reloads podcast because um, uh, they actually they do interviews with uh, each week with somebody who survived a self defense shooting uh, or some sort of self defense situation and. Uh, so it's, you know, it's really good stuff. And then at the end, we do a news update on that podcast and I'm, and I'm on it with Mike Wilver and it's wonderful. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to those guys. I saw them at the NRA annual meeting and, um, and yeah, they're, they're launching a new premium app. And I, so I downloaded it and I was watching their video on round count. Like how, how many rounds do you really need to carry? Uh, Cause uh, active self-protection's whole thing is that they, analyze actual self-defense shootings and incidents uh, on video, right? Because there's, there's in our modern age, there's a lot of these incidents get caught on video uh, all over the world, right? And so they're, they're always looking at them and going through them and, you know, coming up with lesson plan plans based around what actually happens in these self-defense situations. And so they did a, uh, and they've got hundreds of these videos over on their YouTube channel for anyone who hasn't heard of them or check them out. They're fantastic training resource, but the new app has compilations as extended compilations of, uh, that sort of go over each uh, individual question that often comes up in, you know, self-defense situations. And so I watched the one they did on round counts and they showed, you know, the different scenarios as we've talked about on the show, uh, you know, most people in a, who defend themselves with a gun don't actually have to fire any rounds, right? Uh, and they, they show videos where that happens. Um, and they show videos where one or two or three rounds was enough. And then they show videos where, you know, oh, it was six. And then they show videos where the person only had six and ran out and, uh, you know, therefore did not make it or was attacked after the point where they shot several people uh, because there's a lot of multiple attacker incidents in, that they're shown in there, which is something you have to be aware of. And then they go all the way through to, to people who'd shot like 17 rounds uh, and needed all of those rounds to survive. So, you know, it just made me go down the rabbit hole of preparedness, which is a, which is a common issue, I think in the concealed carry world uh, you could come up with scenarios based on real life events that uh, send you down. I need a backup gun because look at this situation. Someone's gun <laughs> didn't work. It didn't, yeah. uh, you know, it, something happened where they needed their backup gun or, or whatever. You, you can go down those rabbit holes forever. Um, I will say that in active self-protections experience, people very rarely 
if ever, actually reload during a self-defense incident uh, during a shooting. But uh, so that's another thing why you might want to carry a gun with more rounds. Anyway, this brings me to my the gun I want to get, which I've wanted to get anyway for a while, which is the uh, the six hour P three six five X macro, which is the it's sort of a you know big brother of the P three sixty five XL, and it it feels like it should be small enough that I could still conceal it reliably. You know, I carry actually a fairly old gun right now. I carry a Springfield XDS, which only holds eight rounds of nine. And so the X macro holds 17 uh, in the right magazines. So uh, I'll have to find, I'll have to figure out a way to buy some 10 round magazines that'll fit into that gun if I'm going to carry it in DC. But uh, I'm still, still waiting on my permit there. I finished my class, by the way. Um, and I got my Pennsylvania non-resident. I got that permit to update everyone for the last time we talked about this. Uh, so I'm, I'm back to being good to go in Pennsylvania and Delaware County did give me a non-resident permit, despite, um, you know, different statements that they've put out in the past saying they won't do them. But, uh, so that's good. And I, you know, so I'll probably get that gun this weekend. I bought a, a life pod safe, the, Alt tech one. Hmm. Uh, have you, you heard of those? Yeah, are those like the quick access biometric type safes, or is that is that something else? No, no, it's um, it's just an electronic safe that uh, you see it a lot with uh, like gun tubers, and you know, Colin Noir has a version of it, like a special, a customized version, and <clears throat> and then Lena Mikolek, who has uh, you know the, the pro shooter. Mm -hmm. uh, she just put out a line with SIG. Did you see that? Mm -mm. The, the six hour rose. I is, have not seen that. No, it's just the P three sixty five line, but it's, it's sort of, um, cosmetically done to be more appealing to women. I think like it's one of the things I like about that line actually. And my girlfriend really likes it. So we might actually, she might actually end up with one is that it's, the guns aren't really, they're the best guns that SIG has for concealed carry, frankly, the 365 line. Um, and so they're not really any different, you know, they, they didn't make, and they're not painted pink or whatever, which is the typical uh, lady gun thing that the industry does. So it's a little more sophisticated, I think, than, uh, than previous attempts to appeal to women. Not that there's anything wrong with a pink gun or whatever, um, but, you know, th this is a little more, it's a different style than that. Um, and it comes with one of these vault tech life pods as part of the package. Um, but, uh, so don't tell Coleon or, or Lena, but I, I bought just the regular one because <laughs> it's cheaper. <laughs> it's like, uh, under a hundred bucks to get one of those safes. So, uh, it seems like a decent deal. It's a nice little travel safe. Um, uh, so, uh, I'm looking forward to upgrading my, my whole concealed carry experience here. I guess this weekend. Um, what about you? Yeah. Uh, do anything? I say sim similar. I didn't get a new gun, but I actually just got a new optic for my first optic mm. from one of my pistols. I have a, a Glock 45 MOS. So it came pre-drilled for an optic and I just ha didn't get around to putting one on for the longest time. And I finally got a good deal on a, a hollow sun, which uh, is made specifically for the MO Glock MOS. So you don't need a nice. base plate or anything. And it just sits right in the slide. And I finally took it to the range last weekend and, and 
put a few hundred rounds through it, got it set it in, and I, I love it. I just once I got it dialed in, I was putting five round groups like the size of a half dollar. Uh, it was just really cool, and it's it's my first foray into this dot world. I know it's kind of been all the rage in the pistol community the last couple of years, and it's it's been pretty yeah. cool. I haven't gotten into it yet. That's actually something I want to do too. And I might, I might buy the macro that has the the integrated red dot. Uh, I think it's about a thousand bucks at the store near me, which is not. Uh, I think that's about what you might expect buying them separately. So, uh, pre-installed from the factory, getting that would be pretty nice. Um, <clears throat> well, I'll have to see which one I actually go with. I'll probably go to all of the gun stores <laughs> first. Uh, to make sure that I get the best deal. Um, but yeah, no, I, I might, I might do that. I might, I might switch to red dot as well. Well, we'll see. Uh, obviously it makes it a little bit bulkier to carry, but right. Yeah. But see, this much. isn't my carry gun. I just use this as a range. Maybe, you know, there's nothing that says I won't carry this at some point, but yeah. for, at least for now, it was just to, to see how I like shooting it and if I can find the dot and, and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I really should put a dot on my uh, 320X5, which, by the way, I used for uh, IDPA a couple of weeks back. Uh, I have to have the, there was a member who, um, Cody Claxton is a reload member, and he invited me to do some IDPA just to, you know, get out and do some competitive shooting, experience it. It was a lot of fun. And I used my uh, 320X5, which performed great. And I thought I should probably put, a red dot on this now that those it's the old cut i guess uh just one of the <laughs> growing pains things for the industry i think uh the last five years or so is a lot of these companies that started offering cuts into the gun from the factory started doing it with their own proprietary cuts yeah. so you could only fit their gun or you had to get the plate or you do uh, it's it's a terrible uh, thing but i think it's become more uh more standardized now if i'm uh, yeah, you know, I'm not totally up on red dot tech, so please don't flame me. But uh, <laughs> in the comments, but but yeah, I, I think it's become a little bit simpler now for people to just you know you get this gun, the cut's pretty standard. You can put a bunch of different aftermarket, you know, hollow sun or or whatever else if you want, or you can use a sig, or you could use um, vortex or who, whoever, and it's not as stupidly complicated anymore. Uh, but yeah, so I, uh, I had initially been pretty skeptical about buying, like, why are these things so expensive for basically a laser that points at a piece of glass? But, uh, but I was educated on that pretty quick when I bought a cheap one and it didn't fit. And, uh, and obviously, you know, there, there's some, there's certainly some legitimate legitimacy to charging more for these because they have to survive the recoil impulse of. Right. Uh, of your gun firing all the time or being dropped or being knocked around or, or whatever. So, uh, it, did start to make more sense to me after, after I, uh, uh, tried them out myself. So, but, uh, yeah, I think that, I think I might go with, with a red dot either. Maybe I'll try it out on the 321st and then move to the, um, to my carry gun. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Let me, you know, keep us updated on how yours is performing. I mean, it sounds we'll like do. it's going great. So yeah, we'll do. I'm definitely excited for now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's get into the news of the week. Uh, I think we're going to try something a little bit new, a little different this time. We're going to go through some of the headlines that we put into the our weekly newsletter. 
Um, Jake, you got uh, some of the some of those for us. What what are we what are we hearing this week outside? Sure. Of so. So outside of the reload, we have one. Well, the Michigan state legislature just uh, officially passed a red flag bill and they sent it to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's desk. That comes out of the mm -hmm. Detroit Free Press. Uh, we have Washington state passing their assault weapon ban, uh, which makes them the 10th state to have an assault weapon ban. That's also awaiting signature from their governor. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a pretty significant one, right? Uh, the, you're seeing uh, sort of some of the momentum. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about this in our main news segment of this week but uh you know washington pushing forward on their assault weapons ban uh, that's the third state since last year to do it and really that there was a 20-year gap between the first round of assault weapons bans and these new ones so that's an interesting trend but it's definitely a big deal um then we have a federal court ruling out of dc where a judge denied a request for an injunction against the district's large capacity magazine ban after the judge said that they were not protected by the second amendment uh that comes from bearing arms yeah and that's another one that's we've seen that happen uh before as well uh with uh, i forget where it was but there was another basically the same exact logic um which is essentially that with their, although this one, I think, threw in the idea that it, the magazine capacity limits are necessary to keep to make sure that police have better firepower than civilians, which uh, yep. that's a saying the quiet part out loud sort of thing, <laughs> right. I feel like. Yeah, yeah. So the state needs to be able to, to shoot you better. It's <laughs> essentially that logic. Yeah. OK, um, boy, I don't know that that's going to stand up on, on appeal, but OK. Right. And then lastly, or. Uh, we have a federal appeals court denying a injunction request for Illinois' assault weapon ban. So this is just one of the many lawsuits against Illinois' state assault weapon ban. But this one was an appeal of a previous denial uh, up to the Seventh Circuit. And the Seventh Circuit also denied a request to stay that ban while the litigation goes on. Hmm. Uh, can you say that again? Would they, they uh, yeah, they, they So a, a district court ruling previously denied an injunction request against that the uh, plaintiffs okay. appealed that up to the seventh circuit and now the seventh circuit has also denied a request to stay that ban and that comes to, from yeah, a, a local fox ban. station right right um yeah so the the federal side of uh the suits against the illinois assault weapons ban has have not gone as well as the state side that's right because uh, the state side's been successful to this point it's actually similar to uh, what's happening in, in Oregon, right, with their um, with their new permit to purchase and magazine limits, where the federal judge was willing to let those let was not willing to block those, but the state judge was, uh, and so we've seen the same thing now in Illinois. Of course, this this is another one that's ripe for potential uh, quick action up to the Supreme Court. Now, quick is a relative term when you're talking about the federal courts, but uh, yeah, we could see some action on the Illinois case, maybe even before the California or Maryland cases, because those are still tied up in, in lower court deliberations. But um, but we will, we will see on that front. And then I think uh, what, Colorado failed to pass their assault weapons ban this week. I was going to say, this right? last story will kind of lead us into our, our main news segment of the week. But uh, Colorado, as you said, the assault weapon ban bill that was introduced was officially rejected, even after lawmakers offered to water it down a bit. And that comes to us from the Colorado Sun. 
But that's definitely a big step because Colorado is a triple blue state and they've made gun control a really big priority this session. And yet in the very first committee hearing, this assault weapon ban bill was uh, given the axe. Yeah. And you wrote a whole members piece on this about what it potentially means for this, the, this sort of resurgence of assault weapons bans. You know, we talked about this a little bit in the past. Uh, where, you know, I think I had a piece initially, like last year, saying that assault weapons bans, the era of them is over. And that was based on, you know, the polling has been uh, going in the opposite direction. It's been trending against assault weapons bans in the vast majority of polls out there. I think there is a, I think the YouGov poll is sort of the one big outlier where they're they're still finding like 60% plus support. Uh, But basically every other major pollster has found a decrease in support to the point where now the latest polling, which is still, they don't do these polls every week or whatever, like you see with approval pollings, but, but uh, it's actually turned against Sullivan's bans on the national scale, at least. Um, and then obviously the Supreme court's ruling in Bruin casts a lot of doubt on the constitutionality of these laws because they're modern laws that don't seem to have, historical analogs dating back to the founding era. Obviously the courts, that's what's the fight in the courts is going to be about. So we'll see what, where uh, the federal judges come down on this ultimately, but, and if the Supreme court steps in, but um, you know, it turned out that wasn't quite right. We, we've seen now a resurgence in at least deeper blue States. As we just mentioned there, Washington uh, follows Illinois, which followed, Delaware in adopting state level bans and and obviously the the house last year passed its own version of an assault weapons ban on the national level now that didn't go anywhere after the house passed it and it's not likely to come back up again in this congress but uh, you have seen a bit of movement in this way a bit of momentum for gun control act ag- ag- <laughs> gun control advocates who want to ban AR-15s and AK-47s and other guns that are affected by these laws. Uh, you know, as we've mentioned before, an assault weapon ban is a fairly nebulous term. It, it means different things depending on what state you're in and what, what their definition of assault weapon is. Usually it's semi-automatic firearm that accepts a detachable magazine, uh, is center fire, and has one or two of a list of banned features like telescoping stocks or um, barrel shrouds or pistol grips, things of that nature. Um, and again, it, it, each state seems to have a different definition of what an assault weapon is, just like most states have a different definition of what a large capacity magazine is. Some it's 10 rounds, some it's 15, some it's 17, some it's different for rifles than it is for handguns. You get the idea. Um, but it seems now with this Colorado defeat that these proposals are bumping up against political reality, right? That's that's what you wrote this week. Yeah, it's essentially it's sort of a Rorschach test, right? Because you could look at the momentum of Delaware, Illinois, Washington and say, wow, maybe this is a sustained resurgence. But over the same period, you've seen triple blue states now pretty quickly reject assault weapon bans. So not only Colorado this week, but New Mexico earlier during this legislative session also pretty quickly killed an assault weapon ban, and they're a, a triple blue state. You have new Democratic trifectas in Minnesota and Michigan this year that have also made gun control a really big political priority, and an assault weapon ban has not been a part of that list. 
Um, so you're seeing the very real politics of a hardware ban butt up against this new renewed momentum, at least among the gun control activist class, to try to pass these. And as you said, those same overarching that uh, underlying features of the Bruin decision and public opinion are also still present. So when you're hitting up against the sort of the extent of your political runway, and then you have impending uh, ju judicial rulings coming down the line, it's sort of like a closing window for this resurgence, if it even is a resurgence. Right. That's and that's the big difference, right, between a Sullivan's bans uh, and the the sort of streak that they've been on and permitless carry, right, which which also saw Nebraska come through and adopt uh, that policy this week, making it the 27th state to do so. Uh, but you still have a couple, you know, the permitless carries playing field is, is really shrinking. You know, the, the possible states that are going to be relatively easy pickups are now already picked up. So you still have the Carolinas, you've got Louisiana, maybe. Uh, you have states where they've passed these laws or they're controlled by Republicans, uh, where you could see this still happening, but that's not a lot of states left that, that are likely to go that direction. Uh, the big difference, though, uh, as you just alluded to there, is permitless carry activists can just keep chipping away at this. They can keep chipping away at opposition to the law. They can keep trying to <clears throat> vote out people who won't support it, uh, you know, so on and so forth. In Louisiana, for instance, they could, if they change the governor to somebody who supports permitless carry, basically they, they'll win. And so they could just wait till the next election to do that. Or they can elect more <clears throat> supporters in the legislature to the point where they can override a veto, uh, you know, reliably and uh, get it through that way. And so they have time and they, they'll, they can continue to, to move on this. Whereas with the Sullivan's bans, it seems fairly clear that they're not going to be constitutional for much longer. Uh, we're still waiting on rulings in California and Maryland, but, you know, uh, I think you, you talked about the, what, what, there were some warning signs. I mean, obviously you've got the Supreme court. One of the first things they did after Bruin was uh, grant vacate and remand uh, a number of cases. One of them was the Maryland assault weapons ban case that the Fourth Circuit had previously said that the ban was constitutional and the Supreme Court is now saying, go back and look at this again under our new standard, which, I mean, look, it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's guaranteed that they're going to they're not explicitly saying this is wrong and these laws are unconstitutional, but it's the closest thing you're going to get to that, I would say. Uh, but there's also there's another reason, right, uh, to think that the court is going to go in the direction of declaring these unconstitutional. Yeah, if you, you look at in your piece. Yeah. So one of the sitting members of the current Supreme Court, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was at one point a D.C. Circuit appeals court judge. And he has a pretty famous dissenting opinion uh, on the district's own assault weapons ban that got before his court. Now, it was a dissent, but he wrote a pretty lengthy dissent analyzing his that ban under what he called the text history and tradition standard, which is mm -hmm. virtually identical to the new standard that's been articulated by Bruin. Uh, which is essentially what all these other courts now have to use to evaluate whatever assault weapons ban, whether it's Maryland's or there's a case out of California and there's a smattering of other cases around the country. Mm -hmm. And so if he's already spelled out sort of the test using history and tradition where this ban would be unconstitutional, that's kind of a pretty big indicator that 
at least according to the high court, that's how they think this this ought to end up. Yeah. So the so the O'Sullivan's ban advocates are butting up against the political reality of how difficult it is to pass new gun bans in America, even in very blue states. But they're also running out of time likely to do it because the courts seem primed to step in and say these restrictions are not constitutional. So that's that's the big difference between them and permitless carry activists, because it's not the same sort of court ruling is not going to come to get permitless carry. They're not going to rule that unconstitutional. Right. Um, And so, uh, you know, that's the big dichotomy, I think. And that's that's uh, people should read your piece if they want to get an even deeper look at that and uh, and understand the issue a little bit better. But that's all we we got time for this week. I know we actually went pretty long uh, because the main interview was was very long, but I think we covered a lot of important things. And um, and hopefully you guys will come back again next week. If you like what we do here at The Reload, please share this podcast, uh, rate it on whatever podcasting app you're listening to it on, give it a thumbs up on YouTube, uh, and, uh, you know, review it for us. It helps spread the word. And if you uh, want more reporting from us, you can head over to reload.com. You can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, or if you want to support the work we're doing, you can buy a membership. That is how we fund our, uh, our, our journalism, our writing. And that is the best way to directly help us. Uh, this is actually our two year anniversary. April 19th was when we launched 2021. So, um, we're, we're going strong, but we, uh, we absolutely, uh, hope to continue to grow and bring more reporting to more people. And so we can do that with your help. And you'll also, of course, get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of uh, analysis and reporting that you can't find literally anywhere else. So head on over to reload.com today and check out our membership options uh, if you want to help us out. But until next time, that's all we've got for you.